Hey everybody, welcome. I am Elizabeth Emery and you are listening to Hear Her Sports, the podcast about phenomenal female athletes. This week I'm talking to Haley McClenney, a super rock star professional softball player. This is her sixth season with USA Softball and now that softball is back in the Olympics, she is working 24-7 to make the Tokyo 2020 roster. I will admit that initially I didn't know any of that. I contacted her because her writing about strength training is really smart and obviously so well-considered, observant, and just plain thoughtful. I love talking weight training, so this episode is a double treat for me. Haley is a four-time All-American at the University of Alabama, where she majored in human performance and exercise science. She earned a master's degree in exercise physiology from Florida Atlantic University in 2018. As a professional softball player, Haley has been with the USSA Pride and Texas Charge in the National Pro Fast Pitch League, and last summer was a member of the independent Scrapyard Fast Pitch Organization based out of Houston, Texas. As a member of the USA national softball team, she is a 2016 and a 2018 world champion and a 2017 Pan American Games silver medalist. She is a total badass because in addition to all of that, she is working full-time as a strength coach at Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, Florida. This episode is part of a three-episode series with coaches. All three women are really quite different with different roles in their sports, so stay tuned and subscribe to Hear Her Sports wherever you find your podcasts. Today, Haley starts this coach series off with an interesting combination of strength training, what's going on in women's softball, and some nitty-gritty details about the game, and of course, the Olympics. So let's get to it. Well, welcome, Haley. Thank you for being on the program. It's super fun to be talking to you now during the Collegiate Softball National Championships. What are you thinking? Oh, my gosh. Best time of the year. It's awesome. Just the the media coverage that we get, especially for college softball, is huge. So, yeah, it's, it's literally the most fun week of the year for me. I'm sad Alabama lost out. But, I mean, what a great week for softball. Yeah, yeah. Do you follow college softball? Oh, heavily. Yeah. I mean, so, so intensely. The SEC network has been super beneficial, I think, for the growth of softball within the SEC. And I mean, I, I obviously played in the SEC for four years, so it's easier for me to follow those teams and coaches that I'm familiar with. But um, once postseason comes around with regionals and super regionals, ESPN does such a great job with covering it and really just making it a really fan-friendly kind of viewing experience. And um, I am locked and loaded with every single regional game, super regional game, and World Series game. So, um, yeah, I love it. Well, you were a big softball player in college, a superstar. So what was it like to be in, in college softball? It was the best four years of my life. I made some lifelong friendships that was really cultivated through the leadership that we had in our coaching staff. And I mean, playing in front of the best fans in the country at, at Alabama, our our home field advantage was unlike any other in college softball, I think. And just so many great memories, so many great games that are played there. But it's definitely, I think, the friendships that stick out to me the most. We're such a tight-knit group of girls, and um, we all really buy into the family atmosphere that Coach Murphy's done an excellent job of creating. It, it truly was the best four years of my life. And what do you like so much about softball? I love that it's a game of failure. I think that's my favorite part of it. I think it's the hardest game that you can play, baseball and softball both. Some of the most difficult, you know, challenges that you face. I mean, we're talking if we're talking statistics, four hundred batting average gets you, you know, to be an all American. And then that means you're failing six out of ten times, which is crazy. So I love that it teaches you to deal with adversity so much. And it's a game of inches, too. So you have to kind of trust your stuff and really put in the work because the game knows um, 
whether or not you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I think that shows in your results, but it's taught me so many things in terms of dealing with hardships, dealing with failure, being able to learn from failure and gain information through that. That's translated over into every single aspect of my life. So how do you deal with failure and what does that mean dealing with failure? Yeah. So I think it took me a long time to be able to learn how to deal with failure. I'm a perfectionist and playing softball and being a perfectionist can kind of conflict each other a little bit. So for me, the biggest thing that I had to learn was being able to let those failures go and not let it affect your next at bat or the next play that you're playing in. For me, early on in my career, I would get so caught up. And if I struck out my first at bat, you know, that would carry over mentally into my second at bat. I would be thinking about that, what I should have done better. I would be so hard on myself. Later on in my career, I just learned to kind of be where my feet are, be in the present moment, um, kind of let that failure go. Uh, how did you learn that? I mean, I think it was a flip of the switch for me. And instead of thinking about it as failure, I think I just thought about it more as I'm gaining information. I'm gathering information on my opponent. Like, this is what pitch she attacked me with here. This is how she got me. What is she going to do the next time? And what can I do to combat that to help me have a better chance at success? Once I realized is, is I'm not failing, I'm just learning. I think once I got that in my brain, I was a lot better and a lot more free um, to kind of play. Because with softball, I mean, it's not like um, it's not like basketball or you know, any other sport where volleyball, even where the next play just, and you're involved in the next play. So, so fast with softball, I could go three, maybe four innings between at bat. So I have all of that time to just think and think and think and think, and I can either be thinking really good things or I can be thinking really bad things. Right. Are you good at sort of translating what you learn to the kids that you're coaching? I, I would like to think so. Um, you know, I'm a strength and conditioning coach at Florida A&M, and I think me having that college experience, me still playing on the national team, um, I'm still involved just as much as they are with trying to train, balance a ton of things all at once. I think that really relates to them, and I think we can connect on that level. And I think coaching kids is all about relationships as well. So if they know and they understand that, hey, like I'm kind of in the same boat with you. I was right there a few years ago in that college athlete life. Um, it's, it's difficult. It's hard, but I know what you're going through. I'm right here. I did it. You can do it too, but let's all get on the same page to try to get better together. And my kids at Florida A&M have been awesome at just buying into that. Even with, you know, younger athletes, when I got to go to a camp or softball clinic or something like that, they want to know what our experience was like. And, you know, I think the ones that truly want to want to play college softball at a division one level, they understand that they understand that it's academics are very, very important. Um, your leadership qualities are very, very important. Being a good human being, having good character is very important. And they they understand that because they trust our experiences can relate to them. What are the things that they're struggling with most, the kids that you're coaching in Florida? I think now nowadays as compared to where I was, where I was coming up and it, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I graduated high school in 2012, but um, the biggest thing that I see with kids nowadays is just in the area of social media, everybody wants a quick fix. They want to look up on Instagram. They want to look up on Twitter or Snapchat or whatever it may be and like find something, some secret sauce that someone has out there and they want to apply that and they think that the results will happen right away. 
Um, there's no such thing as an overnight success. And I, I think a lot of kids struggle with that now. It's, it's a process of getting better. Um, you have to put in hours and hours and hours and hours of work. You have to perfect your craft for it to show up in a game or in a big time moment. It's not just, oh, I magically fixed this with my hands and never took an extra rep, but now I'm all of a sudden an All-American. It doesn't work that way. You have to buy into the process, and it's an everyday thing. It's about having extreme self-discipline and ownership of what you're doing day after day, week after week, month after month, and then you'll start to see results. But I think kids oftentimes compare themselves, like like I said, on that social media platform, whatever it may be. She has this, he has this, and I don't have it. But it doesn't happen overnight for everybody. Yeah. That's one thing that I like about sports is it does Mm -hmm. take time. Progress is, I don't know, is measured by seasons rather than weeks or days or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. And I think softball players especially struggle with that too because many of us only get four years, right? Because the professional softball just really isn't quite where it needs to be yet and only a handful of us get opportunities on the national team so the majority of players you only have four years to get as good as you can and you you can sometimes feel rushed in that process couple that with the social media stuff it's just it's very very difficult to trust a process and continue to put in work day after day yeah you mentioned the current softball situation here in the u.s and also in the world Talk about that a little bit, about where where we're at right now with professional softball. Yeah. And also maybe talk about where you're playing. Yeah, so I'm on the United States women's national team. Um, I'm on Team USA. This will be my sixth summer competing internationally. And I've played professional each of the last four years, I think. I'm doing my math right. And previously, so before I graduated college, you basically had to pick between Team USA and the Pro League here in the States. And... Right after I graduated, they were like, okay, well, like, going to start letting, you know, athletes do both. So I decided to do both. I did that for two years, but on a couple of different pro teams, and that was a really, really good experience for me. The, the national team and the pro league have kind of had differences in recent history. I think that that relationship is getting better. I think that people are starting to realize that softball is a growing game, and we are – doing more harm than we are good if we all can't get on the same page and give female athletes a platform to not only make money, but just just to grow our game. Um, I don't think we can be split. I think a lot of people understand that. Unfortunately, this summer, I won't get the chance to play professionally. I just have too many obligations with the national team um, and probably will be the same way for 2020 as well if I'm fortunate enough to make the Olympic roster in October. I think we're going to have a really good opportunity, especially as national team athletes, to raise awareness as to what needs to change in our professional league. To tell you the truth, it's really not up to par with where it should be with how big college softball is. Yeah, it's so strange to me that that college softball is so strong and has huge audiences and all of a sudden it just drops off. Right, yeah. It's it's very unfortunate because there are so many talented, talented players you know, the MLB is starting to get a little bit more involved with us, Team USA. So hopefully we can make, you know, a push to maybe have something similar that the WNBA has with the NBA. Maybe we can continue to build that relationship. But I do think the Olympic year in 2020 is going to be a really crucial time for professional softball players as well as national team athletes to raise awareness of what really is going on in professional softball, why it hasn't been great, what can we do to fix it. And it's not anything against, you know, the leadership that we've had in professional softball. They're great people. I think everyone is on the same page of we need to be better and we need to 
give these amazing athletes the opportunity to have a legitimate, make a legitimate living after they've competed at the highest level in their sport in college. These kids are marketable. They have a. What would you like to see? I would, I would like to see a very similar situation that the WNBA has right now, where we have similar uniform color schemes. We play at, we could potentially play at minor league parks. We've done that a ton with the national team, and we did it last year when I played professionally with an independent organization, Scrapyard Fast Pitch, who pulled out of the professional league to try to um, really, I guess, not necessarily start a new league, but give more opportunities for financial growth outside of what the professional league offers. I would like to see that. I think a tour model would be great as well, because right now these teams are sort of landlocked as to where they're competing. They have home stadiums, which is fine if you have a really good community there that loves your professional team. I just don't think that's the case. I think you have to go to where the fans are, go to the big travel ball tournaments where these kids know your name, you know, get the word out there on social media that, hey, so-and-so is playing here or, or whoever. But I would love to see the MLB get involved in that way where they, they give us the opportunity to compete potentially at their at their home stadiums, um, if not a minor league affiliate, a big-time minor league affiliate. And we use kind of those baseball-softball crossover fans, especially over the summer, to generate sales, ticket revenue, all of that fun stuff. I don't have all the answers, but I do think we could be a little bit better in the marketing aspect of it. Sure. I mean, I think I saw Billie Jean King tweeted it, I think, yesterday that women only get 4% of the media coverage in sports media. And yeah, yeah. That's, that's absolutely insane. I know. Because that's, that's how you generate revenue. That's how you generate fans. If we could get, you know, the Women's College World Series hosting baseball tonight this, this week was huge. They did that yesterday. If we could get more highlights on SportsCenter, if we could get ESPN to cover professional softball, if we could, you know, try to get the word out there just a little bit more, grow the game, raise awareness. People like our product. That's not a question. But it's about getting the word out and transferring that fan base from college over to professional. One of the things as as a fan, I live in Cleveland and we used to have the Akron Racers Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. they close. And Mm -hmm. so now they're the Cleveland Comets and they're in a different location. You know, like I was just getting to the point where I was going to games and stuff and then it switched. I wonder how much that kind of stuff sort of plays into it. You know, you get attached to something and then it completely changes because the league is so not solid, I guess. Right. Yeah. I I think inconsistency has definitely been an issue. You can look at, you know, any of the number of teams that that they've had in recent years, Akron Racer shutting down. I played for the Texas Charge, a team that also shut down um, the year after I played there. And now we're at a situation where we we have more international players in the pro league than we have American players. That just shouldn't be the case. It's as simple as that. There are way too many good American players that play on college teams to only have really two teams and the bandits and the pride that are majority American. That's, that's just not the way that it should be. And I do think inconsistency does play a part in, you know, the fans, like you said, not be, not being able to have something there all the time and knowing there's potential that it it could be taken away at any point. So that's. How come there are so many foreign players right now? Well, I think people are starting to gear up for the 2020 Olympics and they want really good competition, which is understandable. I think people all over the world know that American players are probably the best players in the world, and our pro league should reflect that, and I think it does. So these teams are they are paying their ownership fees to compete in the pro league. Canada's done it. China as well. Mexico. 
is taking over a little bit of the Cleveland Comets organization, and Australia is also involved. So they know that they need to play tough competition day in and day out to get better. So the NPF has given them the opportunity to do so. I don't blame them. I do think there's great competition in the pro league. Team USA is playing um, exhibition games against the Chicago Bandits and the USA Pride here in the next couple of days up in Chicago. So that's just part of it. I would just like to see a little bit more opportunity given to American players, but that can't happen without a financial investment from an owner that's willing to get into the league. And unfortunately, we haven't seen that. Right, right. Well, you talked quite a bit so far about the Olympics coming up. They are coming up and softball is included. I would expect that your training is so focused on that right now. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. I think we all want to have a spot on that Olympic roster. It's only 15 players that are that are going to be in it competing. So it's very, very competitive. Like I said, America has the best softball talent in the world. So obviously it's going to be a competitive tryout, but we're trying to get ready for that. Um, last year, we were fortunate enough to be able to qualify for the Olympic Games at World Championships. So this summer is mainly about kind of fine-tuning those things, um, working some kinks out, getting some more international experience for our younger players, and um, hopefully winning a gold medal at the American Games, which is basically treated as a, as a warm-up, a mini-Olympics, if you will, for the countries in North America and South America. And we lost that gold medal game in 2015 to Canada in Toronto. So uh, we're looking to get that back. But yeah, it's it's pretty much 24-7 constantly thinking about Tokyo 2020 as of now for me, which is nice. It's fun. I get to train and I have a full-time job on top of that. So it kind of keeps me busy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> talk about your training and how you're fitting that in. Yeah, so I'm a strength coach at FAMU. Florida A&M, and that's basically what pays my bills. But what's good about that is it gives me access to a weight room pretty much 24-7. I can train. I can do what I need to do. Florida A&M is also very close to Florida State University, and the coaching staff there was actually my first set of coaches when I played in the professional league in 2016, my rookie year. So I've gotten to know them really, really well, and I do a lot of my softball-specific training over there, just using their equipment. And basically what happens is I'll work a full day at work, and then whether it's on lunch or after work is over, I will go and get my own training in. Um, I usually work out in the morning in between team lifts, and then in the afternoon I'll try to get some some swings in or some defensive reps in. On my busiest days, I'll work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., just running teams through the weight room all day, making sure they're taken care of. I'll squeeze in my lift around 9 or 10 a.m. on a break and then usually hit on my lunch break. So it's it's very busy constantly, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I love what I do. I love my kids. I love my job. And I love I'm um, still training and still trying to compete at a high level. I tell people all the time, people ask me like, hey, hey, how you doing? I'm like, I'm living the dream. Literally, I'm doing everything that I wanted to do. Well, I think it's so cool. Your, your writing about strength and conditioning is really terrific. I love it. And I want to talk about that later. But first, what kind of softball specific training are you doing? I do a lot of single leg exercises, trying to increase my single leg strength. Because um, softball, it's pretty much played on one leg. A lot of the times we're moving laterally. We are staying in our backside to try to hit a softball. We're jumping all over the place for, you know, balls on defense, whatever it may be. So I incorporate a lot of that in, um, whether that's lunges, lateral lunges. I'll do a lot of those. I work a lot on rotational core power. So hip shoulder separation is really huge when we're talking about hitting and throwing. You want to let your lower body lead your upper body. And um, that's done through a lot of rotational core exercises, whether it's landmine rotations, a ton of med ball work, 
that's where I kind of incorporate that. And then obviously with softball players, we're overhead athletes. So we want to make sure that our shoulders are very, very strong and resistant to kind of the wear and tear that we put on it. So I do a lot of arm care, really just making sure that I'm aware of where my shoulder blade is in space and trying to increase the neuromuscular connection kind of within that joint. So that's pretty much it. Arm care, rotational core stuff, and a lot of single leg stuff. Cool. I forgot to ask, what's it like thinking about the Olympics all the time and sort of preparing for such a big event? Um, it's It can be stressful at times. I think there, there are a lot of times where I'm like, oh, it's like kind of close now. Because I started playing on the national team in 2014, and we didn't even know we were going to get back in the Olympics. Just being on this journey for forever to now have the opportunity to potentially play in an Olympic Games, it's almost surreal. It's It, it really is. And it can get it can get kind of stressful, like I said, just because you know that that's probably going to be the biggest moment of your career if you're fortunate enough to be on that roster. But that's why you just got to take it one day at a time and continue to just work and try to master your craft so you can peak your skill level, peak your strength at that at that time when the Olympic Games are being played. Are you good at sort of long term planning like that for your own strength and training? Well, I, I think so. I think strength and conditioning coaches are kind of taught that in school and with their internship experiences and coaching experiences as well. It's play in the long game. You don't want to, you know, peak so early that you're not peaking in the postseason. For me, I don't want to peak this year. I want to peak next year. So let me think about, okay, how many weeks do I have to train for the Olympics? Okay, what do I need to do now? What do I need to focus on in this block of training? Cool. That was a great four weeks. What do I need to focus on in the next block of training? But just kind of manipulating those intensities, the volume of training, manipulating that so you're both fresh and strong when you need to be, whether that's postseason for college softball athletes or whether that's the Olympic Games for me. I've been really fortunate to be around a lot of good strength coaches that have made sure that I'm aware that long-term planning and long-term goal setting is where we need to be. And as we get closer to, to, the, to the Olympic year, it's about you know just kind of fine-tuning those things and making sure that everything is accounted for. I mean, yes, of course you want to peak during the Olympics, but at the same time you have, you have to make the team. Right. As you said, it's not going to be an easy shot, although it sounds like you're one of the top players. Does that relieve some of the pressure that you can focus on peaking during the Olympics and not for the selections? Um, I, I think I'll manipulate my training to make sure that I'm as fresh as possible. I think us having the tryouts in October will be super beneficial because our season's going to be over September 2nd. Mm. So that that is nice. I won't have to, you know, shake the rust off, so to speak. I'll just stay in kind of softball and game mode during that time. But, I mean, being on the national team for as long as I've been on it, I think it does relieve some pressure just because I'm familiar with the process. I've tried out for the team six times. So I am comfortable with the selection process. I'm comfortable with the players that I've played with the past six years I'm comfortable with the coaching staff so I think the familiarity adds some aspects of comfort to it but at the same time you know that there are so many good players out there that you have to compete every single day and I think that's one of the things that I've been most impressed with with our group over the past few years is we compete against each other pretty much every single day even though we're on the same team because the selection committee is always evaluating us we get evaluated based not on our tryout, but how we play internationally. So essentially with being on the national team, almost every day is a tryout. But we've also bought into the fact that we're putting the team first as well. So it's been a very healthy balance of 
intra-squad competition as well as, you know, just absolutely tearing our opponents apart, which is nice. <laughs> right. So it's, 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 it's difficult. It's difficult to balance, but we, but we've made it work and, and we've been really successful the past few years kind of owning that model. Right. And what are you very specifically working on and hoping to improve? I, so for me, offensively, especially, I want to be able to be a triple threat in the box. So what I mean by that is um, the ability to bunt and use my speed and short game, slapping as well, and then hitting for power. So I want to make sure that I'm refining all of those. I also think I could get better defensively as well. Defense has been, has always, it's usually been my strong suit when, I, when I've played, especially in college. But I just want to make sure that I am truly like a five-tool player. And you hear that term thrown a, a lot around in baseball, but I want to make sure that I can do everything. So for me, that that requires being very specific about what I'm training. Some days I'll take front toss and I'll take batting practice, and I want to work on only my slaps and blunts. I only want to work on my short game. Sometimes I'll only want to work on hitting for power. Some days I'll only want to work on defense. I'll have a super, super intense defensive practice, and I'll have a kind of a lower key hitting session just to make sure I'm still feeling good and feeling fresh and everything. So for me, I guess, I guess it's just being a little bit better at everything. Right. That just that just comes with the reps. Right, right. What is slapping? So slapping, basically just running through the box while you're hitting. So if you watch any of the Women's College World Series, there's been quite a few slappers that have done a really, really good job. It's basically you're just taking a step towards the pitcher, running towards her as you're hitting the ball. What that does is it gives you a little bit of a head start towards first base. So you'll see a lot of um, really fast left-handed hitters utilize the slap. And basically all you're trying to do is either get the ball to bounce off the ground super high in the air because softball, the bases are only 60 feet, right? So anytime that ball is up in the air after it hits the ground, there's pretty much no shot for an infielder to throw you out. So you can do it that way, or you can try to place the ball in between the shortstop and the um, and the third baseman. Just, again, trying to use your speed to get on base. So they'll hit for a lot of singles. They'll move a lot of runners. They'll bunt really well. So yeah, that's what a, a slapper is. Cool. I, I, I did see them doing that. I wasn't exactly sure what the, what they were doing. Yes. So thank you for Slap. the explanation. You're so welcome. So you talked a little bit about baseball. For somebody who's familiar with baseball, what are sort of maybe maybe the tactical differences that you're thinking about or that you have to think about in, in softball? And you, you mentioned that the bases are closer together. Certainly the pitching is different. So, yeah, the bases are close together. 60 feet makes for a lot more kind of bang-bang plays, really close plays, which I think is a, is a really exciting part of our game in reference to baseball. It's just a faster-paced game overall. Pitching's really different. So whereas baseball hitters are looking more for an arm slot up top overhead, we're looking pretty much at, exclusively at the hip the entire time to have that ball released under hands. What's also interesting about, about softball pitching versus baseball pitching, softball pitching can move in four different planes. Baseball, since they're up elevated on the mound, that ball is constantly going to be moving down at you. Very rarely can you get a ball that's spinning up. So for softball hitters, we have to account for all of that. We have to account for a curve moving away from us. We have to account for a screwball moving into us. We have to account for a drop ball that's moving down, and we have to account for a rise ball that's moving up. So we have to be able to hit in kind of all four of those planes while the ball is spinning and coming at you very, very quickly. I know Rachel Garcia, who pitches at UCLA, she's going to be competing for a national championship. She throws upper 60s, low 70s. That's the equivalent to a 100-mile-an-hour pitch in in baseball. You typically only see that with your closers in baseball. 
versus, you know, we're seeing that for seven straight innings and she's still throwing that hard at the end. So that's very, very difficult to catch up to and coupled with movement as well. Another thing in softball, so the aces can pitch every day. There's no pitch count. There's no, just because she threw yesterday doesn't mean she can't throw today. You can throw whenever you want, however many pitches you want. There are no innings limitations or anything like that. So the pitching staffs are a lot more condensed, but the talent level is, I mean, you're you're literally facing a, a Justin Verlander, a Clayton Kershaw, almost every almost every game. So that's also really good, I think, for the growth of our sport as well, because you're seeing those big names, those big faces day in and day out. So that's that's pretty much it. I mean, fences are shorter, balls a little bit bigger, but on the mix for a really, really much faster paced game. Yeah, it was really cool. I read something the other day about how softball players have far less time to hit the ball once it leaves the pitcher's hand. Oh yeah. Than in baseball. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll play, I'll play baseball. My, most of my little brothers play baseball. My um, oldest little brother, he'll be a senior at Alabama. He's on the baseball team. And then I have a baby brother that's going to be a senior in high school who also plays baseball. And anytime I get the chance to go home, we're always out, you know, playing ball, whether it's still Sandlot baseball. I mean, I'm almost 25 years old and I'm still playing Sandlot baseball out in the backyard <laughs> with my brothers. But that's one thing that they're like, they're trying to throw the ball as like hard as they can. And we'll play on like baseball fields. Like it, it is baseball that we're playing. And I find like, I'm always out in front. I'm like way, way early in my swing, but it's just because I'm so used to having someone hum it in there at like 70, 71 miles an hour that I have to react so freaking quick that it's very hard for me to be able to slow my swing down when it translates over to baseball. And I don't know if Walker and Garrison, my brothers, I don't know if they've ever hit off softball pitching, but I don't, know if they, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if their hands would be quite quick enough. I can't pitch for anything, but I would love to see that. I think that would be hilarious. Yeah, yeah. In a recent blog, you were talking about promoting yourself as a player and mm-hmm. once you left school, because, you know, it's so different after you leave college. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you mean by promoting yourself and, and how you've managed that? Yeah, so with aspect to you know playing professional sports as a female we just don't have the opportunity to make a salary based off of our performance unfortunately we have to make our salary based off of endorsement deals and you know kind of other areas of revenue that's how I make my money it's endorsement deals and having a full-time job while still managing you know the workload of being a professional athlete so with that comes a sense of responsibility I think or maybe a sense of urgency, I guess is a better word to promote your brand. What what are you doing on social media? Are you, you know, we're in an age of social media influencers everywhere. Like every time I open my Instagram, it's insane. And I think female athletes can especially have a sense of pressure to live up to that so we can make money for ourselves. Unfortunately, that's kind of the way that it just has to be right now because there's not an opportunity to make salary, like I said. And and then I think with that comes just a sense of being addicted to our phones, almost a sense of comparing ourselves to other players out there. And that's something that I've struggled with too. Like someone else gets an endorsement deal. Oh, well, why didn't, why didn't I get that? Oh, it's because she has like 80,000 more followers than I do. Okay, whatever. That's that's where we feel pressure versus you look at somebody like a, like a Mike Trout, who's arguably you know the best player in baseball, and his social media is just hardly anything. 
but he's making a ton of money with the Angels based off of his performance. He also has some endorsement deals there as well, but everyone knows who he is because of how he plays. That's not the case for female athletes, unfortunately, yet. I think we're getting there, but we still have a long way to go. So it's it's about, for us right now, I think it's about a balance of making sure that we're doing the right things to perform the way that we should perform. But we also have to keep in mind that our brand and how much we post on social media, what we post on social media, has a significant effect on our income. And that can be a very, very difficult thing to balance. Yeah, I mean, I, I man, I have so much... <laughs> <laughs> I I would just think that that would be so hard. I mean, and and you're obviously good because you have a lot of Twitter followers and Instagram followers. But I mean, imagine if you weren't good at that, that would be, just be so hard. Right. It's 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 it is. It's tough. It's tough for me. I mean, I a good majority of my following came from my time when I was at at Alabama. And for me, it was just all about like I'm just being real on my social media. Like this is what I think. This is what I'm doing. Here it is. It wasn't. It was never about trying to market myself in a way to set me up for a good brand after college. It was just something that I did because I liked it and I liked connecting with people and connecting with people that were fans of me at the time. And I think that's the biggest thing that I've seen with a lot of female athletes now. It's more so about they're not being. It's not real. It's it's us trying to create this image and this brand of ourselves to hopefully increase our income. And that again, that can just put so much pressure on you to live up to a certain standard, a certain expectation, instead of just putting your head down and going to work and so, just sort of using social media to document what you're doing versus, you know, just creating something to try to sell yourself to a company or a brand, if that makes sense. It does. And I also think that, you know, social media can take you out of that focus that you have mm -hmm, totally. and that you're especially going to need for the Olympics and for, you know, even just this coming year. So how do you balance that? Like staying focused on really what you have to do, which is a performance versus, you know, letting people know what you're doing and stepping out of yourself for a moment and taking a photo and writing something about it. Yeah, totally. I, I think it's a case by case basis. I think it's very individual for me. I really don't check social media a ton during big tournaments. At the same time, if we're on tour or we're, you know, we have long practice days or something like that, and I want to connect with my fans for a little bit, I'm not, I'm not going to not post anything. Also, I feel like I have a cool picture that one of our USA softball photographers took. Sure, I'm going to post that. I think it's really cool. It's also about us getting the word out there of where we're playing to try to grow the game and increase ticket revenue. Right. But I think, I think we can get into trouble if we are mindlessly scrolling versus posting something that's helpful. And that's kind of, I think, the line that, that we have to draw as players. And again, it's a case-by-case -case basis. You can scroll all you want. If that's what motivates you, people you know, saying things that disagree with you, if that's what motivates you, by all means, get on there, do whatever. But for me, I just I don't really like to do that. I get caught in a sense of comparison a lot with that. So for me, it's it's more so about every time I open my, my Instagram or Twitter or whatever, I want to post something meaningful. And if I don't have anything to post, I'm not going to scroll. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Uh, you also have some really good YouTube videos. Has that been easy to do? And do you like doing that? I do. Yeah, it's fun. I, I think any any way that I can connect with people, I want to take advantage of that. Just because I, I really do want to grow the game of softball before my life ends. I would really like to see, you know, female softball players compensated the way that I think they should be compensated. And that's about raising awareness at the grassroots level and connecting with our fans kind of one-on-one. -on -one. So if it's just me responding to a DM, if it's me doing YouTube videos, 
if it's me tweeting out something absolutely hilarious while the Women's College World Series is going on, so be it. But that's kind of how I feel about it, and that's where I kind of want to see everything grow. But it starts with developing those relationships. Well, I want to talk a little bit about strength and conditioning since you're a coach mm-hmm. and you're currently working. Yeah. Uh, first, did you ever have doubts about wanting to get into a sports-specific field? Um, I don't think so. I think I, I've always been drawn to sports at, at some level, and I knew that I wanted to be around it for a while. When I was in high school, i kind of gotten into a really, really good weight training program with my high school strength coach. And I saw how much that did for me as an athlete. I thought it gave me an edge. And I also loved the behind the scenes aspect of it as well. The fact that, you know, the cameras aren't always in the weight room. I think they are a little bit more now. But back when I was growing up, they just weren't in there. Something that you could do in private to just get better at, get stronger, get more explosive, get faster. And I loved that aspect of it. And I pretty much knew that was what I wanted to do as soon as I got into college. Had a really good experience in interning with the University of Alabama, their athletics department. Worked with golf, some swimmers and divers, some rowers, some softball players, obviously. But um, that was more me working out and not coaching. I, I had a really good experience with that. And I just I knew it was something that I wanted to do. Do you have theories about strength training? I mean, do you have a specific philosophy or anything like that? Um. Yes. I. I, I mean, there's going to be so many different training philosophies out there. Honestly, there's there are a lot of things that work. For me, where I'm at at Florida a and I, I have a limited use of equipment, so I can't get super, super fancy with the stuff that I do that, that you'll probably see on Instagram or, or whatever. So I'm a big barbell-based strength coach. I like big movements, squat, deadlift, bench. Pretty much all of my athletes are going to do that. Even my baseball and softball players will get into the bench press for a little bit. That's kind of different in terms of you know what you'll hear from a lot of baseball and softball strength gurus. But unfortunately, I don't have a ton of equipment to get enough of a strength stimulus without using that exercise. So squat, bench, and deadlift are really, really big for me. I use Olympic lift variations, so power clean variations where we don't catch, whether that's you know a clean pull from the floor, a high pull from the hang position, just to develop those fast twitch muscle fibers, get them super, super explosive, utilizing their hips and getting triple extension at the ankle, knee, and hip. I'm also very big into injury prevention as well. So anytime that, you know, for baseball and softball, it's going to be a lot of arm care. Volleyball the same way, especially for our hitters. We're going to use a lot of arm care. For uh, basketball, it would be a lot of hip, knee, and ankle prehab movements. Couple that with a really strong core, because I think that's how our force and our energy is transferred. It's up from the ground, through our legs, through our core, up to our upper body. And that's a movement that's used pretty much in all sports. And then I use a lot of triphasic training techniques. So all that means is there's three phases of muscle contraction. There's an eccentric, an isometric, and a concentric. So an eccentric is where most of injuries occur. So that's when the muscle is lengthening. So if you think about eccentric, you're going to think about a very, very slow tempo on the way down in your squat, for example. And what that does is it builds strength a lot quicker and it gets athletes in control of that eccentric motion to where they're able to be neuromuscularly aware of what their body is doing when their muscles are lengthening. Isometric just means the muscle is not lengthening at all. It's staying the same length. You'll go down like normal. You'll pause at the very bottom of it, three, four seconds, and then explode back up. 
that also is just injury prevention and then teaching athletes how to be aware of where their body is in space and just create as much tension as possible so we can increase how we develop force. And then concentric is just normal tempo up and down, working on being explosive and exploding kind of out of those bottom positions. So with the squat, we'll add resistance with bands to try to train them to come up a lot quicker, explode up a lot faster. And that's really just all about the intensity of the movement. How fast can you move that weight? So that's kind of my whole spiel, I guess. I also do a lot of sprint training. I think sprinting is the best thing that athletes can do. People ask me all the time, like, hey, like Coach Haley, how do I get faster? Well, how much do you sprint? Oh, like once a week, you're not going to get faster. <laughs> like you have to sprint a lot if you want to get faster. So, Oh, that's so that interesting. With- yeah. Yeah, right, isn't it? So couple that with a lot of a lot of resistance training, getting stronger. If you can get stronger and you can get faster, you're going to be a lot better of an athlete. I can yeah. tell you that. So, I love that you mentioned working on imbalances and injury prevention. I mean, I certainly mm-hmm. suffer from that after years of cycling and, mm-hmm. and wished I had sort of taken charge of that much earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, injury prevention is huge. And I think making sure that athletes are aware of what injuries they are prone to whether that's through a movement screen or just me watching them and how they lift. You know, I've, I'm not anywhere near where I need to be as a coach. I still have a lot to learn, but that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed about being at Florida A&M is I, I'm getting the, uh, the availability to see athletes in the way they move and be able to like just spot things that could potentially lead to an injury later on. An athlete's feet are flat. Well, how do I, you know, help their arch so they can, you know, transfer energy up their kinetic chain better this athlete's knees are caving in when they're squatting or jumping how can we program some prehab exercises to kind of help activate the muscles that need to be activated my eyes have gotten a lot better which is really really cool and then incorporating some movement screens which we're going to do this fall at florida a&m to hopefully give us an idea of just what the athlete specifically needs to work on whether that's body awareness you know if they have a lack of mobility in a joint somewhere, just anything like that that can give us more of an idea of where to head in that individual injury prevention route. We're going to do that. Cool. How much are you involved with the athletes in their off seasons so that you can sort of address some of these issues, which are harder to think about and work on, you know, during their competitive season? I'm very involved. Every single athlete has my number. They know it's an open door policy. If they have any questions, they know where they can find me. They know they can contact me. Very, very involved. I think coaching is all about developing those relationships. So if I have a good relationship with a kid and they feel comfortable coming to me asking a question, that is huge because I know that that allows me to make them better. If I just hand them their program and be like, eh, go do it, take care of it yourself, that's not going to help them at all. I can write the best program. I can give them all the tools, but if I don't have that one-on-one relationship, it's not going to get executed the way that it should. So I need to make sure that I'm very open to communication. I'm willing to listen and really putting them first, I think is the biggest thing. What have the hardest lessons for the athletes been? Like what, what do they, what do they have trouble adopting? I, I think for every athlete, especially when you in this age of recruiting and all the social media hype and whatever, It is very difficult to hold yourself to a standard of excellence in everything that you do because you've been praised for so long about how good you've been. And then once you get to college, you're not you're not high on the totem pole anymore, especially your first year. So getting them to understand that not only does 
your your play matter, your performance matter, but everything that you do matters. You being on time to a lift matters. You being engaged and active in your 8 a.m. class matters. You being freaking present for that class and not skipping class matters. You being intentional with every rep that you take at practice and in the weight room, it matters. Everything matters. Making up your bed in the morning matters. Treating your coaches with respect matters. It all it all leads to a really good disciplined life. And that's going to translate past when your playing career is done. It all influences your performance. It's not just, oh, I've been good my entire life. Like I can get to where I'm at and just kind of coast. That's not what it's about. It's about being as good as you can be, mastering your craft and setting yourself up for success long after your playing career is over. Do you think that weightlifting and strength training is is good for non-competitive people? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. If we're talking about, you know, just long-term health for anyone, you need to be resistance training. It's, It's so, so, so important. The research on it is, it's just vital. And that's what we're seeing. The more and more research that's coming out, it's about protecting your joints. The older that you get, preventing arthritis, preventing dementia, even exercise is super important for the prevention of Alzheimer's, all these other, all these neurological diseases, really all of all diseases, systemic inflammation, exercise is really good for at preventing. But resistance training specifically is really, really good if you don't want aches and pains in those joints as you age. I know my mom is dealing, my mom has terrible knees, bless her heart. And we're trying to incorporate some resistance training stuff with her. And it doesn't have to be that you're squatting 500 pounds a day. That's just stupid. It could just be, you know, grabbing a 25-pound dumbbell and doing four sets of 10 of squats. I mean, really only you need about, I would say, 30 to 45 minutes, three to four times a week to get, you know, the results that that lead to long-term health. But yeah, everybody should definitely be doing it. It also makes you feel good, too. Like, when you feel strong, you feel really good about yourself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I also think, you know, it's so helpful for just being able to live your life, you know, like, pick up the groceries and things like that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And we're talking about being functional. Like, yeah, like you said, carrying the groceries when you're, you know, 85, 90 years old, right. probably, probably due to a good amount of resistance training. Right. You mentioned science and research and stuff. How do you stay on top of things? So I'm a member of the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And the majority of the research that I get comes from the journal that they come out with every month. I try to stay on top of it as best as I can. Obviously, being busy with a full-time job and still trying to train for the Olympics, I've had to make sure that I stay disciplined in that area because what I realized early on when I was super busy is sometimes that was getting put on the back burner. So it's really just about discipline for me. I follow a lot of really, really good quality strength coaches on social media. That way that I can make sure when I'm, you know, just trying to decompress after a long day, I'm still getting a little bit of an educational component as well. So I've kind of tailored my social media following to that, which has been really, really good for me. Do you have a favorite? Eric Cressy is probably like my favorite dude. I was fortunate enough to train at his facility in Jupiter, Florida a couple of years ago when I was still in grad school at Florida Atlantic down in Boca Raton. He is just a baseball, I hate to say, use the word guru because I hate that, but he is so well-versed in shoulder health and baseball-specific strength training. A lot of his stuff is really translated over from me to the softball side as well, and I implement a good majority of his stuff with my baseball athletes at FAMU and with my softball athletes and volleyball athletes even at FAMU. So, He's probably been my, my favorite, and he's he's a really good guy, too, so so that helps. He's not just some, like, meathead jerk. 
that lifts a ton of weight all the time. He's like, he's really knowledgeable and he's just, he's a good dude. Yeah. Well, cool. Is there anything that yeah. we haven't covered that you'd like to? Oh, I know. I think I'm good. I mean, you got, you have my whole life basically. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, I think I'm good. Well, good. Well, thank you so much, Haley. It's been a real pleasure to talk oh about my softball gosh. and strength training. Heck yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm really excited. And I'm certainly excited to watch how things go this season for you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. A big thank you to Haley for being on the show. She took time away from spring cleaning, as it turns out. Maybe we were a welcome break. I'm glad to do that. Anyway, it's always fun to talk to an Olympic hopeful, so we will keep track of what Haley is up to between now and Tokyo. Since talking to her during the NCAA Softball National Championships, the USA team has been training and competing together as a prep for the first big test at the Pan Am Games. I don't know why it still amazes me, but it still does. You know, of course, on the podcast, we hear what the guest thinks about herself and about her sports and all the intense training she's doing. But we also hear how important the long view is of promoting her sports and her fellow athletes and future athletes in the sport. Because of the state of women's sports these days, female athletes still have a real sense of how they fit into the bigger picture of growth for women's sports. I'm always boosted up by that for sure. So keep listening. Our music is by the band Goldmines our logo by Agnes Studio, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye-bye. So I'll write programs for, like, young athletes from back home or whatever, and I always have to tell them, like, hey, you know, like, here's your program, but just, like, send me a video every now and then just to make sure that, <laughs> right. you know, you're not, like, killing yourself. should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-back training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. 